Again, thank you to our volunteers. There are just um, so, so many, so many volunteers that make Sunday mornings happen that do some very specific things that are never seen or talked about. We're actually going to do a volunteer Sunday in January that's going to highlight uh, some of the things our volunteers do and um, shamelessly ask for more volunteers. So that'll happen after the first of the year. But thanks to especially the nursery and children's church volunteers who um, make the service uh, run like it does. Uh, well, we're in a, a time called Advent right now, and um, the church has historically referred to these weeks leading up to Christmas as Advent, and that just means coming or arrival. Um, it's where the church looks back on the birth of Christ and remembers and celebrates that and also looks forward to his coming again where he will come and make all things new. And so during these four weeks of Advent, we are looking at four songs at the beginning of Luke's gospel, and these four different songs are all about the birth of Jesus. They're songs of Jesus. And our passage this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, and you can find that in a Bible or uh, printed for you in the bulletin. Um, There's an author named uh, Fleming Rutledge, and in her book on Advent, she says that Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. Uh, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. So she says, our faith requires a now and a not yet. The now, Christ has already come and we celebrate and we worship because of that good news... And we wait. We wait for him to come again and to make us and all things new. And as we wait, we experience the reality of our own sin. As she says, the the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, pain that characterize life in this world. Um, In our waiting, we feel that life is still really hard. Um, And I wonder how you're experiencing that this morning. Um, I love the Christmas season. It's great. Uh, But the commercialized version of what Christmas looks like is just not true. It's a lie. Think about a typical TV commercial um, that that you might see around this time of year. It's usually a visual of a very happy family where everyone is getting along. So you already know that it's not realistic, right? A happy family where everyone is getting along. There's no awkwardness. There's no betrayal. There's no strife. Somehow everyone is happy and laughing Um, Each member of this fictional family looks like they could be a model, um, picture-perfect physique, um, perfectly dressed. Um, The gifts being exchanged are extravagant. Uh, Somehow, you know, now there's one where you you get a new truck and a puppy. Same commercial. Uh, And there appears to be no financial strain on this family, which is amazing. Um, The food being served is gourmet. And it's perfectly done. There's no burned ham, no mysterious casserole. It's amazing food. And of course, the home that they're celebrating in, it's perfectly remodeled. There's no clutter anywhere. There's no like awkward floor plans um, or, uh, or, or clutter on the kitchen counter. And if you just think about these ads, you know, it's, it's a 30-second ad. But when you see that multiple times a day over weeks and months and years, it begins to shape us to think like, My life should be like that. 
And it's not. And, and, and I want that. But it's a lie. No one's life is like that. Or maybe it's not the, the, the perfect TV image that gets you. Maybe it's memories of Christmas's past where um, you just think way into the past and you think, all right, everything was just better then. Um, you don't remember the quarrels, the anxieties, the disappointments, but instead nostalgia has sort of taken over and it almost seems like, yeah, everything was like perfect back then, right? Um, the, the, the author and uh, psychologist Brene Brown talks about nostalgia this way. She says, um, uh, nostalgia is a dangerous form of comparison. She says, think about how often we compare our lives to a memory that nostalgia has so completely edited that it never really existed. She says, nostalgia about our past can actually edit memories in such a way where they, they kind of become a lie, where they are also not true. Um, all right, the reality that we live in is one of disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain. And so we live in this tension that does include real joy and worship because Christ has already come to save us. And this tension includes the heartache of waiting for things to be made new. Our passage, which I'm going to read, is going to help us to name this tension. And hopefully we'll believe more deeply that, that what we're really longing for this morning is not the perfect TV image of a Christmas season or thinking nostalgically back on the past. But what we're really longing for deep down is peace or shalom as the Bible calls it. Just before our text, John the Baptist was born and celebrated through the song of his father Zechariah. Our passage picks up chapter 2 verse 1 with the birth of Jesus. This is Luke 2 in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God 
for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this good news. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand it this morning? We confess that we can't do that on our own. We can't do that by human learning, but we need your Spirit to help us understand. So would you speak to us during this time? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the passage this morning is uh, maybe a, fel- fel- uh, a fairly popular uh, text. Um, if you maybe only visit a church around Christmas time, I'm guessing that you've heard something of this passage before. Um, in the middle of our passage, though, is a song that is sung by the angels uh, in celebration of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to look at that song specifically uh, to understand the bigger picture of what is happening in our text. So just two headings this morning as we think about this. We're going to talk about a song about God's glory and a song about our peace. It's a song about God's glory and a song about our peace. First, a song about God's glory. So right in the middle of this account, an angel appears to the shepherds and it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And understandably, the shepherds are terrified. That's a terrifying thing to envision. The angel tells them Christ has been born, gives some specific details about how to identify this newborn baby. And suddenly it says that a multitude of the heavenly host appears and they all start singing and praising God. Again, maybe it's something you've heard before that is relatively familiar. But stop to appreciate the stunning visuals that are being set up here. The visuals are amazing. It's probably something that we can't really quite imagine. It's a starlit night. Um, shepherds out guarding their flocks, doing the work of a shepherd in a field with sheep. An angel appears in the glory of the Lord, announces the birth of the Savior, then thousands of angels start singing together. Thousands of angels. Uh, We don't know exactly how many. We don't know how loud it was. Uh, But I would have to guess that this was breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, Like the kind of beautiful music uh, that brings tears to your eyes. And they're singing about God's glory. Which is interesting considering that this is maybe one of the greatest displays of the humility of Jesus that we have on record. And so in this passage there is a beautiful paradox of a glorious angel singing in mass, glory to God in the highest. And what led them to sing was this display of humility. And we can look at this humility in a few different ways. Um, we can see this bigger picture. Uh, we see humility in the fact that Jesus took on flesh. We see humility in the fact that he took on flesh. This is talked about as, as his incarnation, the eternal Son of God uh, coming down and taking on real human flesh actually being born as a baby. And this stands out when you, when you um, look at the names given for Jesus in this passage. If you look, he's called Son of David. Uh, this is king language that uh, God promised that our Savior King would come from the family of the great King David that's talked about in the Old Testament. He was a king. 
Um, He's given the name of Savior. The promised one who would save God's people. He would be the one who in and of himself had the power to save. He's called the Christ, uh, which is the Messiah or the Anointed One. Um, Not an Anointed One, but the Anointed One. The very Christ, the Messiah of God. He's called Lord in our passage. God himself, the one who reigns over all things, controls, directs, rules everything. Um, These names are loaded with weight and power and glory. And it's this mighty one who comes in humility to take on human flesh, to willingly experience the miseries of this life. So we see his humility in the fact that he takes on human flesh, but we also see his humility in the specifics of his birth. Mary and Joseph, in the front part of our passage, they traveled to Bethlehem because it was required them to register themselves. And so they're they're taking a formal uh, record of the population. And while they were there, Mary gives birth. Um, And there's no proper place for this to happen. No room at the inn, as it says. No reasonably clean indoor space. So they went to the manger where the animals stay. And she gave birth to Jesus there. And there's no fanfare. No one really knows it's happening. It's a small town. It's a humble, unglamorous, under-the-radar birth. And immediately after his birth, who do the angels appear to? The angels appear to shepherds. And, you know, we might tend to think that this was just a, kind of a normal, career, great career option. If you're coming up at this time, you know, you could be a shepherd. That's one option. Shepherds actually had terrible reputations. Um, because of their work with animals, they were ceremonially unclean. They could not keep the purity laws. So because of that, they were considered outcasts. Um, they were generally thought of to be dishonest. So their testimony did not count in the courtroom um, because they just couldn't be trusted. Yet, this is where God sends the angels to bring this good news that Jesus has been born. Um, If you wanted to make a big splash with the birth of Jesus, you would not have it happen in a barn or have shepherds be the first ones to hear about it. I heard an interview this week with an author who um, has written a book about his career as a maitre d' in some of the finest uh, restaurants in New York City. The, the, the maitre d' role is uh, one uh, that is sort of like um, that of a host or a hostess at a restaurant. They would handle reservations, greet the guests when they arrive, uh, but they would also have like a supervisory role over the entire wait staff. So it was like they were kind of in charge to make sure that guests just had an outstanding experience at these really, really high-end restaurants in New York City. And he did this for like 40 years, and so he wrote a book about it. And, and, and he really pulls back the curtain in this interview and, and he said that um, at the highest end restaurants that he worked in, that, that he would have celebrities and famous politicians and really just well-known VIPs uh, come into the restaurant with no reservations, which these are restaurants where there's like months or even, you know, over a year in advance you need reservations. But these celebrities would come in with no reservations and just pull out the cash, you know, and, and, and walk up to his, his, uh, his desk and, and just start... Uh, getting the tip ready and get tip him, you know, maybe even up to $500 to say, hey, look, I need the best table in the restaurant right now. And so it would be this dilemma for him where he would, you know, see the money in front of him and think, well, I would like to have that money. And so how can I make this happen? And so he talked about these, these times where he would have to like rearrange things or rush them in or get them at just the right table. And, and he would try to do it. But he said occasionally he would just have to say no. He, you know, there was literally no room for them at this, for this very important person at this very important restaurant. 
And he said sometimes these famous people would understand. But a lot of times they would not understand because they're not used to hearing no like that. And so they would yell at him or like make a scene, sometimes even get physically violent with him because he wouldn't give them the table. But think about how that, that, that VIP, this very important person, this celebrity is showing up into that restaurant. It's this, this aura of, look, I'm important. I'm a big deal. And if you know what's best, you're going to give me a table. Jesus, the son of David, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. How does he show up? He comes to us in a barn. Shepherds hear about it first. Doesn't come demanding special attention. He's not demanding recognition. He's not making a name for himself. Does the opposite. He comes in humility. And there's this beautiful paradox where his humility leads to a song that gives him all the glory. Um, I heard a quote from a guy named Kevin Kelly, who is the founding editor of Wired magazine, in which he said that in a casual sort of surface level relationship with another person, not a deep friendship, but maybe sort of a, maybe just beyond an acquaintance, he said that we know about 2% of that person. We know about 2% of another person. And, um, and when we get to know that 2% of the person, we think we know them. We think we sort of, we understand who they are, but we use all sorts of assumptions and generalizations to fill out the other 98% of them that we don't actually know. Which is just sort of an interesting thing to think about. But think about someone only knowing 2% of you and then making assumptions about the rest. Um, that doesn't feel good. We don't, we don't want to be known that way. We want people to truly know who we are before they make assumptions about us. Do you feel like you really know Jesus? Uh, maybe you grew up casually around the church and maybe taking in a little here and there. Or you're, you're visiting, maybe you have ideas about Jesus. Um, or maybe what you've perceived about him is mostly what you've experienced through knowing church-going people or other believers or other Christians. Um, and if that's where you're at, it could be that you only know about 2% of him. And you've made a lot of assumptions um, and, and uh, generalizations about what he's really like. Um, his birth, how he came and took on human flesh, even the specifics of his birth, begin to fill out an accurate, fuller picture of what he's like. And it's showing us that he is beautifully humble. And his humility is so beautiful, it leads the angels to sing glory to God in the highest. So the angels, they're singing about God's glory. Uh, but we see that it's also a song about our peace. Um, you may have heard the word shalom before. This is how, how peace is spoken of in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Our text has the Greek equivalent of that word in the New Testament. Um, this peace, this shalom, um, it's bigger than the way that we tend to think about peace in our context. Uh, shalom conveys the idea of, of completeness or soundness, or wholeness. Uh, it's the idea of security, or to personalize it, it's like the idea of a deeply, internally calm heart. And the angels are singing that Jesus brings this shalom for his people. And this peace gets worked out in us in a few different ways. Um, the first way is that Jesus brings us peace with God. 
He brings us peace with God. This is ultimately what the angels are singing about. That there's something happening here uh, with the birth of the Savior that is going to give us peace with God in a way that we have not yet experienced it. And ultimately we're going to see this accomplished on the cross. We actually recited this earlier in our call to worship from Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. It says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Um, that we were reconciled back to him based on what he did for us on the cross. Why did he have to do that? Um, because our sin has broken this peace that's spoken of here. Um, it broke the completeness, uh, the wholeness of our relationship with God and his world. Basically, it messed everything up. Uh, what once was whole is now fractured. Um, and maybe you're here and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or, or maybe you're just totally new to some of what the Bible teaches. It's crucial to know that the Bible says that this is at the very core of why life is so hard. Um, the shalom that was once experienced between God and people, the shalom we were created for, has been broken because of our rebellion against God. Um, it's our choosing to do life on our own terms rather than on God's terms. It's, it's us making ourselves the ultimate authority in life rather than yielding to God's authority in our lives. And that rebellion, it shatters the shalom. And it's so bad that in order for it to be dealt with and really corrected and restored, blood had to be shed. The penalty was death. And Jesus died this death for us so that we might have peace by his blood. Um, this is the good news of great joy that the angel speaks of in verse 10. And they're overflowing in song. So Jesus brings us peace with God. This peace gets worked out into the specifics of our lives though. And Jesus also brings us peace with others. He brings us peace with others. Um, there is this overflow of peace with God that spills out into our relationships. Uh, the Apostle Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians says to quote, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So there's this vertical peace with God, our reconciliation with God can actually lead to horizontal peace in our human relationships, to reconciliation with one another. And, and, and even as we're talking about that, this might bring to mind a whole list of like broken or strained relationships from the course of your life. And I think if we're honest, uh, that can feel like a bigger obstacle than our peace with God. Um, it might be easy to get our minds around the idea of being reconciled to God, uh, maybe easier than thinking about real human relationships that we've been in that have been fractured. Um, the feeling of betrayal done to us or that we've done to others, it can just feel insurmountable. But, but in that feeling of impossibility is where we begin to get a glimpse of the power of God's peace. Um, that the peace accomplished by Jesus on the cross really is a peace big enough to bring healing even to our real fractured relationships. Um, which is why sometimes you can hear of forgiveness and reconciliation being extended in the face of just unimaginable evil. Um, after the mass shooting that occurred at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston uh, back in June of 2015, um, not long after, relatives of some of those who were killed, so relatives of some of the victims who were shot, had the opportunity to speak directly to the shooter 
Um, it, it was just maybe within a week or two. It was over sort of a video conference feed um, in the courtroom. And there was an, and it just took, it caught national, international news, the way they responded. This was a quote from one national paper. It said, the relatives of people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina earlier this week were able to speak directly to the accused gunman Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious, precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Um, this is how powerful the peace of God is that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And even you can hear it from the words of Nadine Collier there. It does not minimize the pain. It does not minimize the pain of, of broken relationships. It doesn't mean an easy path forward. Of course not. It doesn't mean that things will be as they were before. But it does mean that God's peace is big enough to not only bring us peace in our relationship with Him. But to begin to bring peace in our relationships with others where there was once animosity and hostility and betrayal. Maybe slowly, uh, maybe little by little over time, but real peace. It overflows into our relationships with others, but we also get a taste of this internally. Um, Jesus brings us peace within ourselves. Um, many of us live chronically busy lives, right? It, it's the acceptable, celebrated sin to talk about being overly busy and overworking, right? Where it feels like we are like one appointment or soccer practice away from like a total emotional breakdown. Um, and there can be lots of reasons for this busyness, of course, but sometimes um, we operate at a breakneck pace so that we don't have to sit with ourselves in the quiet. Because when we sit in the quiet, when we slow down and when our schedule clears and it's just us and maybe not even a screen to distract us, um, no one's making demands on us, we can begin to feel that uh, and even hear the hum of anxiety in our life or the hum of shame internally that is increasingly getting louder and louder when everything else gets quiet. Uh, in, in our house, and I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, when everyone is sleeping, there's five of us in our house. That means there are five different sound machines that are turned up really loud. And then there are two fans uh, that are intentionally very noisy fans that run. So there is just this, this hum of white noise throughout our entire house that, you, that, you, that we just cannot help but sleep with um, every night. Um, the steadiness of that sound machine, it's a lot like the anxiety, the hum of the anxiety and shame that is always on within us. And, and we can work hard to stay busy, to, to, to not notice it or ignore it or drown it out with something louder, uh, but we know it's there. Um, the peace with God that Jesus came to accomplish on the cross is so powerful that it begins to get deep down into our souls and begins like a steady drip on that hum of anxiety and shame inside of our hearts to begin to quiet it down. Slowly, little by little over time, begins to quiet the shame and anxiety 
inside of us. So much so that the psalmist can cry out in Psalm chapter 4 verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. How about that in contrast to waking up at 3 a.m. with just your mind racing? In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. It's peace that we can lie down and sleep with. Um, But look at the end of verse 14. You know, it's a song about God's glory. It's a song about our peace. But who is this peace for? Who is a beneficiary of this peace that Jesus is bringing into the world? It says, those with whom he is pleased. That means that there's a specific audience. It's, It's not everyone. It's those with whom he is pleased. How do we become those with whom God is pleased? It is not by anything within us. Not by any of our doing. It's simply by falling down before him in repentance and faith. Uh, Like we talked about earlier, earlier saying, all right, I'm not going to do life on my own terms anymore. I'm going to turn from that. Repentance involves turning. I'm turning from doing life on my own. I'm turning to God. I'm falling down before him saying, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the good in me. I repent. I yield. I believe. It's, It's owning our sin and embracing Jesus as our only hope of peace and salvation. That's how we become those with whom God is pleased. And so the question for us this morning is, how are you responding to God? Have you responded to God? How have you responded to this message of peace? And there are a few responses in this passage that can serve as a model for us. And I wonder where you might find yourself this morning. Verse 18 All who heard it wondered. There's wonder. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Could this good news really be true? Maybe God is opening up your heart and showing it to you in ways that you have not embraced it before. And you're beginning to to think, this is a lot better than I had once thought. You're wondering. Verse 19, Mary. Mary's response. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Again, beautiful faith, treasuring, pondering in her heart. Are you you able to treasure the good news? Is it something that is so precious for you that you hold, that you treasure, you think about it? It's amazing to you. Or verse 20 that says the shepherds, they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and, and seen. Has Jesus captured your heart in such a way that it leads you to sing? Can you join in with the angels this morning and sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? Uh, To join in this song, to experience this peace, this is what's on offer to us all this morning. Won't you reach out and receive it by faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for good news. Thank you for good news that did not come demanding glory and recognition, uh, that did not come with, uh, with lights and flair and fame, but love that came to us in humility in almost an unseen, very unimpressive way. 
We're overwhelmed by the humility of your Son. And for that, we do cry out glory to God in the highest. And Father, we thank you that, that, that his humility led him to the cross, which gives us our peace. God, help us to know this peace. Peace with you. Peace with other people. Peace within our own selves, Father. We long for that. Would we taste more of that this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.